I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to help you create an identity. Every successful Tacklebox company has had an identity and they've had it from early on. You may think you need an identity for brand. Your customer sees the consistency of your actions or you message well about the thing you stand for and it's compelling. And that is definitely a side effect. Humans are drawn to people and businesses with clear identities. But the real reason you need an identity is so that you can move fast and keep momentum. I think of every startup idea as a giant boulder sitting dead still in front of the founder. The founder's first job, maybe the hardest one, is to get it moving. The transformation from not working on a startup to working on one is huge. Most people never make it. To keep the boulder moving, though, you'll need to make lots of decisions with incomplete data. For most first-time founders, this is a new skill. The best way to handle it is to have an identity, an organizing principle, to measure each decision against. Would a company focused on X pursue Y is a way easier question to handle than should we pursue Y. Here's a dead simple example. If you're a restaurant that specializes in traditional Southern Italian food, maybe because you're in a neighborhood with a bunch of people from Southern Italy, and your sous chef says, hey, I made my kids a great penne vaca over the weekend. Can we put it on the menu? Your answer is easy. No. They don't serve creamy sauces in Southern Italy, so we don't serve creamy sauces here. The sous chef would likely even know not to ask about it in the first place. But if you're a generic Italian restaurant, maybe because you didn't want to miss out on tourists who like lasagna or pizza, you've got to spend more time on that decision. Do we want to serve penne vodka? Well, how good was it? Can you make it for me? How much would it cost? Do our customers want it? How much could we charge for it? Why did they come here in the first place? Why do they come back? The hard part of entrepreneurship is always that at any given time, you could do anything. That type of optionality, the time spent considering options with incomplete data, is a massive tax on your momentum. You need a system to make those decisions fast, and an identity is the best one I've found. And for the record, your Italian restaurant in that example was called Cheesy Does It. I didn't mention it before, but great name. Choosing an identity is hard because it requires you to not choose a bunch of other potential identities. And as I mentioned, you'll have to do it early, which means you won't have nearly enough data points to feel confident in your decision. But that doesn't matter. You are way better off choosing the wrong identity, aligning all of your decisions behind it, then a few weeks or months later realizing it was a mistake and adjusting, then spending time on each opportunity that crosses your desk, considering what your company would look like if you pursued it, making each decision in a vacuum. The first approach might work. The second is guaranteed not to. A clear identity is rare, and if you need proof of that, check your Gmail promotions tab, assuming you're listening to this around the time it was released, which is the week after Thanksgiving. In there, you'll see dozens or hundreds of emails from every brand you've ever looked twice at, pushing Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales. These start with emails that sound excited, then transition to emails that sound kind of hopeful, and end with emails that are Oliver Twist-level desperation. My inbox looks like this. 
Our sale is live, only a few items left. Last chance, sale extended one day, sale extended two days, sale extended three days. I swear we never do this. Please, sir, please, won't you buy this $89 merino wool t-shirt for 14 bucks? We'll even throw in a beanie. I might have made up that last one. Black Friday isn't necessarily a bad strategy for the right companies, but the decision to pursue it has consequences. And I'd imagine it doesn't line up with the identity the business owners envisioned which flows through to a misalignment in what the customer sees and expects. What I will remember from Black Friday this year is my wife angrily shouting, come on, Friday morning, because her favorite sleep sack for the little guy from a brand called Kite Baby wasn't on sale. Ugh, my wife said, the fact that these sleep sacks aren't on sale makes me want them that much more. Of course they aren't on sale. They're amazing. Why would they be? Then she bought one, full price. I had the same reaction after searching to see if jackets from a brand called Railwen were on sale. They weren't, and Railwen didn't even acknowledge that it was Black Friday. Why should they? Their identity is high-quality, long-lasting, timeless stuff, and why would you ever put that on sale? Kite Baby's identity is products that'll help your baby do the most important thing in the world for parents, sleep. Why the heck would that ever be on sale? I'm sure the internal decision for each company was simple. Would a company with an identity like ours need to participate in Black Friday? No. Next item on the list. As I mentioned, internal alignment has the great side effect of creating a consistent brand. A brand is pretty simple. You declare who you are, then you make a bunch of decisions internally and externally that support that declaration. You act in a way a customer can recognize and predict. That is exactly what an identity helps you do. Side note, the other thing I'll remember from Black Friday is when I excitedly showed my wife a fleece with mountains on it from Marine Layer on steep discount that I thought would make me look cool, and she made a face and said, you sure? In the same tone a waiter at a diner uses when you order the servant turf. I didn't get that fleece. Anyway, there are two hard parts of an identity, picking one and sticking to it. So let's get to it. After, a little smooth jazz. Hey! We've got a few slots opening up for Tacklebox where we help people turn ideas into startups as a few of our founders have now outgrown the core program as their businesses have scaled a bit. So if you've got an idea you've been sitting on and you want to turn it into a startup, let's do it. And to sweeten it a bit more and maybe kick you in the butt a bit, if you apply in the next two weeks and get accepted, you'll get 50% off your first month. Just head to gettacklebox.com and apply with what you're working on and put code HOLIDAY in the application when it asks for a referral code. Back to it. Categories. An identity creates alignment. I visualize it like a pyramid. The top piece is the identity and every other action or part of the business supports it. This works best when that top piece is something you do uniquely well or a perspective that isn't widely shared or a piece of a process or customer or business everyone else ignores or when you create a category shift, an added unlikely circle that makes your Venn diagram unique. And that is where we'll start. The category shift is one of my favorite types of identity because it flows through so nicely to the customer. When humans interact with anything new, the first thing we do is place it in a category of something that isn't new. If I see a can of LaCroix and I've never seen a can of LaCroix before, I'm going to put it in the sparkling water or possibly soda category in my brain. Then I'll assign it all the characteristics of that category. 
I'll assume it'll be sold in packs of 12, that I'll drink it cold, that it'll be carbonated, and it probably won't be good for me, and on and on and on. Maybe it's not exactly perfect, but it's good enough for me to move on to the next thing. A category shift is when you jump out in front of your customer, when you tell them what category you're in before they get a chance to put you in the default one. This is powerful because then they compare you to the things in the category you chose. My favorite example is also in food. The Perfect Bar, a peanut butter bar my wife and I love eating for breakfast, lives in the refrigerated section of the grocery store. It's next to the yogurt and fresh produce, so I assign all the characteristics of fresh food onto it. It must be healthy and perishable and not have preservatives and on and on. It has to be in a totally different class than the other protein bars in the dry food aisle. It's got to stay refrigerated, so of course it's different. Now, when I compare it to the Greek yogurt, which is sitting right next to it, of course the peanut butter bar wins. It's way tastier than a Greek yogurt. But if it had been in a sea of other protein bars, maybe I wouldn't have chosen it. The dirty little secret of perfect bars is, of course, that no refrigeration is necessary. They just use refrigeration to get themselves a nice little category swap. Recently, someone told me about a new skincare company called Jolie. The URL is jolieskinco.com, and the benefits on the website are all about skin. They'll get your skin smoother, less oily, give you less acne, etc. It looks like the benefits you'd see on Kiehl's or La Mer. Except, they don't sell cream, or moisturizer, or toner, or bronzer, or any other of the errs. They sell showerheads. Their website says, quote, we believe your shower water is step zero, and then they explain how acne, eczema, rashes, and other ailments start with the water in your shower. Everything you're putting on top of that, all the creams, are irrelevant because the root cause is the water. The showerhead filters out chlorine and heavy metals, which are added to water supplies to destroy bacteria, which is a good thing, but they mess up your skin, apparently. There's a testimonial on the site which says, quote, New York City water might have been helping the bagels and pizza, but not my skin, which I could not include because what a line. I know nothing about the company, but I'd imagine this positioning, this identity as a skincare company makes every other decision easier and the company work better. First, they don't have to compete in the showerhead market, a place with rare turnover and a lot of competition and wholesaling and Sears if that company still exists, and more importantly, the urgent purchase, the people whose showerheads broke and they need a new one and they're going to search showerhead on Google and that is going to be expensive as hell. Second, they get to compete against other lotions and creams. This makes marketing straightforward. Every ad is about how lotion and cream and the errors are great, but only if you get rid of chlorine first. Finally, from a product perspective, it's way easier to take a shower than to put on lotion twice a day. It reminds me of the perfect bar versus the Greek yogurt decision. Peanut butter bars are so much better than Greek yogurt, and if I think they have equal benefits, of course I'm going to pick the bar. Jolie could drive this home with messaging like, quote, spend your monthly Kiehl's budget on a showerhead because the Kiehl's won't work without it anyway. A skincare company aligned around the idea that water is the most important problem to solve around your skin aligns everything else beneath it. And category swaps are especially great for organic growth because they're usually counterintuitive. When someone says, hey, I just got this new face cream, your customer will say, well, that's all well and good, but you know it won't work if your water has chlorine in it, right? The danger with a product like this is always education. 
If your customer isn't aware of the problem with chlorine, it'll be tough to teach them, then sell them. But when I mentioned this to my sister over Thanksgiving, she said, quote, oh, I've heard about chlorine. I've actually bought shampoo that's supposed to help with it, but just filtering it sounds so much easier. The category shift dramatically simplifies decision-making and hard codes an advantage in their DNA. First, principles. Another path to an identity are what I think of as overlooked first principles. Building blocks of a process or a problem or a market that are ignored. When I started drafting this podcast, I gave myself a prompt. What companies or people or schools or directors or authors in my life have the strongest identity? What jumps out? One thing immediately popped into my mind and I did not see it coming. It was the 1994 Arkansas Razorbacks basketball team. For the record, I was 10, and I'm not sure I've even thought about them five times since, but that is how strong the identity was. So I jumped on Wikipedia. The Razorbacks won the 1994 national championship, beating the cheaters from Duke, then lost in the championship game in 1995. It was an incredible run for a school that wasn't historically a basketball powerhouse. So how'd they do it? They had an identity, and it focused on an overlooked first principle, and their own constraints. Arkansas was never going to recruit the type of talent Duke or Kentucky or UNC could, so what else could they do to win? Coach Nolan Richardson found something. Here is a direct quote. Most guys don't like to run hard, he said. Most guys don't like to be guarded hard. There's a lot of things that they don't like, and that is what we've got to give them. My goal is to make every player on the other team uncomfortable and miserable every second of every game. Here is what he meant. A basketball court is 92 feet long, but most teams only play defense on their half of the court. Really, they only play defense once the team gets within 25 feet of their basket within shooting range. So for 67 feet, there's no pressure. Point guards regularly walk the ball up the court, dribbling casually, talking to their coach and calling plays. But, Nolan Richardson thought, what if we guarded them the whole time, every foot, every player, every second, like lunatics? What if our goal was to make our opponent so uncomfortable they didn't even want to play the game? He termed it 40 minutes of hell, the length of a basketball game, and it was their identity. Once this was in place, the waterfall decisions were obvious. Who do you recruit? Well, to play 40 minutes of hell at full speed, you can't just play the customary seven or eight players. They'll get too tired. So you need a lot of athletic bodies that are more or less interchangeable. You need athletes, 12, 13, 14 of them, and they all need to be willing to play that style. They don't necessarily need to be that good at basketball, but they got to play the style. So recruiting goes from who's the best player we can get to let's find players that have long arms and big hands and maybe also play soccer or run track. What type of offense do you run? One predicated on movement to take advantage of a rotating cast of players that are in great shape. But really, offense isn't that important. Defense is the thing. During practice, they had a 40-minute timer where the whole team would sprint up and down a massive hill on campus. They had to be that fit to make it work. And it did. Teams hated playing them. They were completely thrown off. They'd never faced anything like it. And Arkansas won and one, and one. One of the first principles of basketball is that you have to dribble the ball up the court every possession. 99.999% of teams ignored that. Arkansas didn't. They took that moment and they built their whole team around it. 
We have a lot of people applying for the program to become coaches, not the basketball kind, the life kind, or the management kind, or the fitness kind. The other day, I was chatting with someone who'd applied to Tacklebox who wanted to be a coach that helped people shift from one field to another. He talked about all the pillars, finding and testing a new career, learning the skills, creating a network. But I gave him the Arkansas example, and I pushed him. Pick a customer and tell me the first principles of helping them, the process, the dams in the river, what is overlooked, what's the walk the ball up the court corollary. He didn't have one. But a week later, he emailed. He said he'd worked out the building blocks of leaving one career to pursue another, and he'd spoken with customers and identified one thing that was glaring and important and completely ignored. Money, he said. He went on. When you're changing careers in your 30s, most of the time it's to do something you enjoy a bit more than whatever you'd picked right out of college. Often the thing you're switching to is less lucrative, and you likely need to take a more junior role to learn the ropes. I always thought people stayed away from this sort of move for emotional reasons, but after reviewing interviews and speaking to more people, I think there's a huge financial component too, he said. It is such a black box, what you might make, what you have, what you need. I want to organize my company around that moment, figuring out financially where you're at, what the risk is, how to make the jump. A big part of this then might become teaching them how to consult for a while for their old company, framing that conversation with bosses. It might be helping them figure out lifestyle changes. If that were my identity, he said, if I deal with the financial fears and logistics that come with switching careers, would that work? I don't know, but it's a start, I said. And that brings us to our last point. The end. Stay disciplined. The hardest part of all of this is staying the course. After Arkansas had back-to-back years of national championship and then runner-up, they started getting opportunities they hadn't had before all that success. Specifically, better recruits. Some of the top players in the country now wanted to come to Arkansas. Players who wouldn't buy into that system of run hard for 10 minutes, then sit for 10 minutes, then run hard for 10 minutes, then hit the showers. But players who could score 40 points on any given night. Players picking Arkansas over Duke or Kentucky or UNC. Players who could make the NBA. Now, the right answer, according to the 40 minutes of hell identity, would have been to turn those players down. But that is hard, and Arkansas didn't. And then they had a jumbled identity. 40 minutes of hell for most of the players, except for a couple of stars, because they play all the minutes and they take a lot of shots. And so maybe offense is more important. And yeah, they don't play complete defense, so their player can walk the ball up the court. The alignment was off. The decision was out of whack and the team started to lose. Maybe we'll do a Black Friday sale just this once, just to make a quick buck. And the brand dissolves just a bit. Or, more likely, you never get to that point. Back to our friend who's deciding to build his identity around helping people financially in the moment of career change. Maybe he speaks with customers to narrow and nail the niche even further and builds landing page tests and launches cohorts for people changing careers from finance to project management, and the reaction is pretty good. Maybe it doesn't blow him or anyone else away. As always, there isn't really enough data to say either way. And then someone reaches out after a month or two and says, hey, I like this finance thing, but what'd be really cool is if you matched finance planning with education around product managers. Teach those skills. Get these people a mentor. So it's teaching and mentorship and finance. One-stop shop. Maybe he gets excited. Uh Uh-oh. Sometimes it's right to change. Sometimes it's worth sticking it out. 
In my experience, 90% of people's problems come from changing too early, not too late. Three years ago, you took Italian lessons for three months, then you got frustrated and stopped. If you just pushed through for a couple of years, you'd be somewhere, but you didn't, so you aren't. I was a baseball pitcher in high school, and I had a confidence problem. I had three pitches, a fastball, a curveball, and a changeup. And when the catcher called for a fastball, I'd always second-guess him. I'd shake him off. Maybe a changeup would be better, or maybe I should throw the curve. I was always unsure what to do. My coach came to the mound one day, livid. He said I wasn't allowed to shake off the catcher anymore. Stop worrying about which pitch is perfect and start worrying about executing the pitch that was called. Throw with conviction. And that's the advice. Pick an identity. Use the methods we spoke about. Make sure it matters, then go after it with conviction. Stick with it for a while, a little longer than your instincts are telling you. The stuff takes time. That is the approach that could work. Bouncing around without an organizing principle because you're scared to pick something never will. And if you're a family member looking for a Christmas present for me, I really feel like I can pull off that fleece with the mountains on it. Give me a chance. I'm cool, right? This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you have a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you in 72 hours and we can be working on your startup idea by the weekend. Have a great week. 